I also want to encourage you, you probably got a note sheet as you walk through the doors. Um, a lot of our community groups are taking a break for the summer, and this is not a community group week, but I hope you'll still take some notes, grab a pen, and uh, write some things down. Uh, I shared last week, a lot of times people say, well, Pastor, that was a great message, and I'll say, what stood out to you? I, I don't remember, but it was a great message. And so I want you to write some things down as we're journeying through the book of Romans. Um, remember week one, I, I quoted Martin Luther, and here's what he said about the book of Romans. He said this, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. Okay, and so I want to encourage you, church, um, to stick with us, uh, especially through these next few weeks. It's going to feel like we're getting in the weeds a little bit, all right? Um, but I want to encourage you, if you can understand the book of Romans, it's going to help you understand the whole of the book, of the, the whole of Scripture, all right? Uh, this is why if you look at every major revival in church history, you'll find this, that the leaders of the church at that time were influenced by the study of the book of Romans, okay? Now, you'll likely remember that Paul laid out this premise in chapter 1, that those who by faith are righteous have life. Or we could say the righteous live by faith. Amen. And then he goes on to share how every one of us is accountable to God because creation itself speaks of his attributes. And so really, when we talk about sin, understand sin is simply living contrary to the attributes of God. It's rebellion against our creator. It's rebellion against his word. It's kind of like buying a new car and as you're driving off the lot, throwing the owner's manual out the window, right? And saying, I don't need that, right? Ain't nobody going to tell me how to take care of my Ford, right? They would say, my Ford, my choice, right? It's kind of the world today, right? God's not going to tell me how to live my life. And so Paul addresses a subject early on in this letter, and it's not a very prominent subject in the church today. He begins to talk about the wrath of God. And this will ultimately, we said, lay a backdrop for the grace of God. He basically says when we insist on going against nature, against God's design, that he will give us over to our lusts, and those things will ultimately destroy us. Chapter 3, verse 23, Paul's going to say this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so here in chapter 2, where we are right now, he's, he's building this case for that statement. First, he talks about the immoral person. Again, this is the one who seems to have no regard for God. They, they just live however they please. They're going to live their life the way they want to live their life, even if God says it's wrong. But as we look at the world around us today, can I just say that there are a lot of things that are taking place that God isn't the only one saying, hold on, that's wrong, right? Uh, I don't know if you're following what's happening with the Target Corporation. I hope you are. I hope you're aware. My red card is cut up, it's done. <laughs> My wife and I have made a decision that we're not going to shop there anymore. Understand, as believers, we need to be very mindful about where we invest our money. Um, again, if you're not aware of what's going on, I encourage you to find out, all right? Um, I was watching Target stock drop these past few weeks, tanked this last week, and here's what I know. It's not just believers who are pushing back on what they're doing in that store, um, Many people who do not name the name of Christ still have this foundation of Judeo-Christian principles, right? And I think that's a good thing for our nation. I do. I think that's a good thing for our nation, that there would still be some common sense pushback, right? Some of your friends and your coworkers may fall into that category of being good moral people, and maybe they're not believers, but you heard them say, man, can you believe what they're doing? That's crazy, right? Listen, when you hire a transgender Satanist as a designer, 
you just might be up to something, okay? <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, again, I want to encourage you to look into it, right? But, but there are, are many people around us who live by a, a certain sense, a set of morals, right? There's, there's no short supply of good moral people in our country, even in New York State. But as we saw two weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is going to talk to the good moral people. Because he was wise enough to understand that there would be many who would read what he just said about the immoral person, and they would begin to congratulate themselves because they're not like them, right? They would say, thank God I'm not like one of those terrible, immoral people. God, you've got to do something with those people. You've got to fix those people, those people, those people. But remember, we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, that he says, therefore, what? You. Paul turns it around and he says, you are inexcusable, old man. Now, the moral person would say, well, who are, you, who are you talking to, Paul? Well, he's talking to you, and he's talking to me, and he's talking to everyone who would consider themselves morally superior to the immoral person. Remember, we talked about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? And so now Paul begins to address the Pharisee, if you will, and he says, in whatever way you judge another, you condemn yourself. Now, if we were looking at those two individuals, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, we would say, well, hold on a minute, Paul. I mean, the, the tax collector, that guy's obviously immoral, and that guy doesn't do his sin. And so how do you say he does the same thing? But the question is, by what standard do you know that something is wrong? Write that down. By what standard do I know that something is wrong? You see, it's not enough for us to just say, oh, oh, that's, that's wrong, right? The judgment must be based upon something other than your own opinion. You see, there are some Christians that say we, we shouldn't put our beliefs on others. This idea of separation of church and state. You've got to just keep your belief and your faith to yourself. Do you know that that idea of separation of church and state was originally established to protect the church from the state, not the other way around, Okay to protect the church from government interference. And so anytime we say that something is wrong, it's not enough to just be offended because I'm offended. That's my own personal opinion. If we're judging rightly, we would say, well, that's wrong because God's word says it's wrong. And Paul's point is this. If we're going to take God's standard, right, if we're going to take his rule, then we can't just apply that standard to the obviously immoral man. We have to take that same standard and we have to apply it to the moralist. We have to take that same perfect standard and apply it to ourselves. And as soon as you do that, the whole house of cards begins to fall down. Because God's standards apply just as much to the moralist as they do to the obviously immoral man. The same standard that makes the immoral man guilty also makes the moralist guilty. Because when we judge, and we, we judge rightly, we actually point to a standard that's outside of ourselves, and that standard will condemn us as well. Again, remember where we're going. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just the obvious sinner, the, the man whose life is so completely broken that he's, he's living on the streets. Paul's going to talk to the moral man, and he's going to say, sure, you consider yourselves morally superior, but really you break the same standard that you're trying to hold others to. And according to God's truth, he's going to judge you as well. Remember the question, and it was a hypothetical question, do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Now I want to show you something in verses 6 through 11 that I didn't get to show you two weeks ago, and I know you're like, really, Pastor, we're going backward? Yes, we're going back, because you need to see this, okay? In verses 6 through 11, 
is there's what we would call a chiasm or a chiastic structure. And it's really this amazing literary tool, okay? It's used so often in Scripture to, to make a point. Okay, what is a chiasm? Very simply, a chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of either words or ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. Okay, and so it gives us this mirror effect, if you will, uh, as the ideas are reflected back to us in the passage, okay? The structure of a chiasm is usually expressed in a series of letters, and so each letter represents a new idea or a new word, and so you would have the structure A, B, B, A. The idea A, idea B, and then those ideas repeated in reverse order. And so let me give you a common chiasm. You've probably heard this one before. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. You guys know that. Just to be clear, it's not in the Bible, okay? You're not going to find that in condiments 416, okay? You won't find it there. Not scripture, okay? But do you see the chiasm? Okay, two words, going and tough, and then repeated in reverse order. Now, let me show you a chiasm in the Old Testament. Genesis 9-6. In the ESV, because that follows the word order in the Hebrew text, the verse says this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So the pattern there, you could say, is A, B, C, C, B, A. Do you see it? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Jesus said in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, right? So you can see there, there there's symmetry, okay? And, and the sentence makes the point that much more memorable. And it's amazing because as you study these chiastic patterns in Scripture, uh, you'll understand they're such an integral part of the revelation of God's Word. Okay, we don't see these patterns and, and, and superimpose them on the text. This is not like Bible code stuff, if you remember that, right? Um, when we look at chiasms, we're actually discovering things about God's Word as it is written, okay? And really, as you study them, what they demonstrate is the divine inspiration of the whole of Scripture, you can actually see the whole of Scripture as a chiasm. We don't have time to go into that today, but you can see it. The structure of the entire book of Romans is actually a chiasm, okay? Now, why is that important? Because I want you to see that Paul didn't just haphazardly write words on a page. He wasn't like some of you high school students when you write an essay, you're just watching the word count, right? You keep saying things over and over again because you've got to get the word count there, okay? That's not what Paul was doing, okay? Paul was an absolutely brilliant man but he was also inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter. And there is tremendous order. There's tremendous structure and purpose to the book of Romans. And so if somebody asks you, what did you learn in church today? You can say, I learned about chiasms. Okay, and then you can explain that. But I want you to see a chiasm there in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Okay, here's how this verse goes. These verses go. It says, he will render to each one according to his works. B, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, see, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And now get this, in case you didn't get it, he's going to give it to you backwards, okay? There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is one of the, the clearest uh, chiastic structures in the scripture. And again, Paul is using this literary device to make a point, and he wants to make it very clear. And, and here's the point he's making. He's going to say this. There's really two groups of individuals, okay? First, you have God who's, who's sovereign. He's going to give to each one according to his works, 
And then God's looking down upon two groups of individuals. Again, the first is those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality. They're described later on as everyone who does good, right? The Jew first and also the Greek. But the second group of individuals are those who are self-seeking, okay? They do not obey the truth, but unrighteousness. And later they're described as every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So you have these two groups of individuals, and then there are two things that they receive. The first group, he's going to give eternal life, also described as glory and honor and peace. For, For the second group, there is wrath and fury. There's tribulation and distress. But all of this is based on what? God will render to each one according to his works. In other words, according to what people do. It's based on their deeds. It's based on how they they live their lives. And you you may say, well, hold on, Pastor. I raised my hand. I walked the aisle. Paul says you'll be judged by your deeds, by your works, by the way you lived your life. But I was raised in a Christian home by your deeds, by your works, by the way you lived your life. Yeah, but I went to church every Sunday by your deeds, by your works, by the way you live your life. That's Paul's point there in verses 6 through 11. And it's the same point he's going to make in verse 12. Look at the text with me. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who've sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Can it get any clearer than that? It's the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, you can read that, and I've said it before, this section, in this whole section, Paul is making this case of justification by faith, right? In other words, it's justification apart from my works. Well, you have to understand what Paul is saying in the context of this section. Chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, what he's talking about is the great need of justification by faith. Again, this is going to be the backdrop upon which he shows the marvel of God's grace. And so really at this point, he's directing us to the fact that man has to be justified by faith. Like there's no other alternative other than men being justified by faith. Remember, the immoral man, the pagan man is guilty. Why? Because God's revealed himself through creation, through natural revelation, and man ignores that revelation. Instead of worshiping the creator, he worships the creation, right? And so even though he doesn't have the law, even though he doesn't have special revelation, he's guilty. He's without excuse because he has not been obedient to the revelation that he has received. Now, we can't miss the fact that he's already said this because he's going to go on from here in Romans chapter 2, and he's going to talk about the guilt of the Jewish world. And, and this is really the, the crescendo, if you will, of chapter 2, right? It's the fact that not only are the Gentiles guilty, but the Jews are guilty as well. Look at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, I want to be very clear what Paul is not saying here in verse 14. He's not saying, hey, you know those, those Gentiles who don't have the law, but they keep the law anyway to the point that they're being justified before God because they keep the law? That's not the point. That's not what he's saying, okay? We're going to see that later on in chapter 3. 
But, but if you look at the Greek language, it points to the fact that he's speaking hypothetically, all right? Again, we, we talked about general revelation and, and just how based on general revelation, there's a sense in, in every culture, okay, this is right and this is wrong. And so Paul is saying when a Gentile does something because of general revelation that God has given to him, maybe it's his conscience that bothers him, right? And he knows that's right and that's wrong, right? And so he does the right thing, Right? When that happens, he is a law to himself. In other words, he's done something that's right even though he didn't have the special revelation of God to say that's right. Are you tracking with me today? And so Paul is not making the argument that this justifies the man. We could look back again, chapter 1, verse 18. And then chapter 3, we're going to see there that no one's righteous. No one actually seeks after God. And so what Paul is saying here in verse 14 is really theoretical in order to make a point to the Jewish people. And what is that point? It's important, church, that you get this point, that it's not just the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the ones who do it. In other words, if you're a Jewish person and, and you're listening to this letter being read and, and you think because you have the law that you're better off than the Gentiles, here's the reality, that's not enough. It's not enough to just have the law. You have to do it in order for that law to actually have advantage in your life. I shared James 2.10 a few weeks ago, right? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. You see, here's what Paul's really doing in this section. It's brilliant. He's got the Jews pointing their fingers at the pagans, and they're like, oh, again, oh, those, those people. They, they got their false gods. They... They have general revelation, but they still don't get it. I mean, those people, they don't even have the law, but we've got the law, and we've got the Ten Commandments. They don't keep the Ten Commandments. They're uncircumcised. They don't sacrifice. We do the sacrifices, right? Yes, Paul, they're in trouble. Wrath of God. Preach it, Paul. Paul says God's going to judge them by their deeds, and he's like, yes, Lord, judge them, but here's the truth. God is going to judge everyone by their deeds. For those who don't have the law, he's going to judge them by their deeds. And they're going to be accountable for the light that they have received. They're going to be accountable for what they know because they know enough to be guilty. But for for those of you who have the law, he's going to judge you by your deeds as well. Now here's the deal. Most rabbis would have pushed back on this idea. Many of them would have said, well, as long as you're descended from Abraham... As long as you're of the Jewish race and the Jewish stock, then God will always be favorable towards you. You don't have to worry about going to hell. You don't have to worry about being judged. But Paul says, no, that is absolutely untrue. God shows no partiality. He's going to judge according to the facts. Well, Paul, I'm circumcised, just like you, on the eighth day. I have the sign of the covenant. That's not enough. You're going to be judged according to your deeds. Well, there was that time, Paul, that I brought this sacrifice to the temple. And man, what a sacrifice it was. You should have seen that sacrifice, Paul. It's not enough. Well, I'm better than any Gentile I've ever met. Certainly that's enough. How about no? <laughs> Paul says the same thing to the immoral man, to the moral man, and now to the religious man, that you are a sinner, <laughs> and you have outright violated the law of God, plain and simple. And one day you're going to stand before God, and you're going to be judged. Today we say, well, I go to church every Sunday. i got a Bible on my lap. I've got this beautiful Bible, Pastor. You've got to see the gold leaf. I've got the tabs in there. You want to see my highlighting? I highlighted the whole Old Testament, right? You've got to see this, right? Hear me today. Merely having the Bible or even knowing it will not save you. 
It's ultimately a matter of where your faith and your trust is. On the day of judgment, God's not going to ask you how many Bibles you have in your home, right? We will be judged based on what? Is it my works? Okay, now this is the struggle that we wrestle with, right? Is it by the things that I do? Well, that's what the religious person would say. He would say, my works equals righteousness, right? The things I do make me righteous. I have the law. I keep the law. Therefore, I'm righteous. Case closed. And Paul's going to say, hold on, counter argument. You don't actually keep the law. And there's the problem. Look ahead to verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Like, you keeping the law? How's that working out? It's not. So how are you righteous? Well, then you could go to the other side and say, well, sola fide, right? It is by faith alone. Okay, well, what about works? And this is the the thing we wrestle with, right? Is it my faith or is it my works? Remember verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. There, There seems to be, if you read through Scripture, there seems to be this great contradiction between the book of Romans, this idea of justification by faith, and the book of James. You know, when Martin Luther talked about this idea of justification by faith, he couldn't stand the book of James. <laughs> he almost felt like it shouldn't be a part of the canon of Scripture. Remember, James writes in James 2.17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. There seems to be this great contradiction even in the book of Romans. Chapter 3, verse 20, when we get there, Paul's going to say, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And so you say, okay, pastor, what's going on here? I would propose to you that there's no contradiction at all in these passages. And we can see it there at the end of chapter 2. Look at verse 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, the good works that Paul has in mind are the works that are done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Understand, it is the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit in us that actually produces good works in the life of the believer. And those who do such good works will receive eternal life. Later on, chapter 2, Paul is going to say, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. If you were to go back to verse 7, remember the description of those who God will give eternal life to. It says, they seek for glory and honor and immortality. And so how do they seek God if no one seeks? Let me tell you, it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. As we continue on in the book of Romans, as we get into chapter 4, verse 5, Paul teaches that we are justified by faith alone. And really what that means is that the only thing The only thing that unites us to Christ as far as righteousness is, is a dependence on Christ. And then when James says, James 2.24, that that we're, we're not justified by faith alone, he means that the faith that justifies us does not remain alone. The faith that justifies us does not remain alone. We are saved by faith alone, but that faith does not remain alone. Understand, these are not two contradictory positions. What we're going to see as we continue on in the book of Romans is this beautiful picture of faith alone uniting us to Christ for righteousness. And that faith, the faith that unites us to Christ, does not remain alone. It actually bears fruit in our lives. 
And that fruit, the, the works, is an evidence that you and I are united with Christ. As a church, we believe in the doctrine of justification by faith. We, we believe that we are declared righteous by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why we're going to celebrate communion in just a few moments. That's what we remember, right? But after justification, what's the next step? What's the next step after justification? You might say sanctification. How many would say that, right? Well, God's changing us, right? He's shaping us. But don't miss what comes before sanctification. It's adoption. Adoption. It's very important, church, we understand this idea of adoption. So often the world will use this term, children of God. We're all children of God, right? Can I just say theologically, scripturally, that's not correct. Not everyone is a child of God. In fact, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you're sons of Satan, right? You're sons of the devil, right? Not everyone is a child of God. Now, understand this, we're justified by faith, and then we are adopted into the family of God in Christ. But here's the question that we have to consider. How can we say that we've been united with Christ in his death? How can we say that we've been adopted by Christ, that we've been justified by Christ, that we're in the process right now of being sanctified by Christ, and yet there's no fruit in my life? That's the question that James is asking. And that's why he says faith without works, really? You think you can have faith without works? He says that's a dead faith. You know, if you look back at the early church, they would say something really audacious that, that we don't say much anymore. They would say, do you want to know that the gospel is true? Then look at our lives and you'll see that the gospel is true. Look at our lives and, and you'll see that the gospel is true. Very different from what we say as Christians today. What do we say so often? Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. Now, I get what we're saying there, but let's be honest. For many, that's a cop-out to ever live holy, Right? I'm not perfect. Christians aren't per- perfect, right? Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, follow me as I follow Jesus. But hundreds of years later, we've turned that around and we say, well, don't look at me, right? Look to, look to Jesus, right? Don't imitate me. Look at Jesus. Now hear me. We need to direct people to Jesus. That's absolutely necessary. But, but I have to ask, shouldn't we live in, in the type of lives where people can say, you know what? I can see that the gospel is true by the way that you live your life. I can see that the gospel is true by the way you live your life. You know, more and more that I study the early church, the more I come to understand that the early church was a a, a gathering of believers. It wasn't an evangelistic event. There were no seeker-sensitive churches in the first century. The believers would, would come together and they would Uh, worship together, they would hear the word together, they would receive communion together, and and there was such a presence of God's spirit in the room, there would be signs and wonders that would follow, and every once in a while, an unbeliever would walk in, right? That's why Paul says we should do things orderly, because an unbeliever might happen to walk into the room. But the early church gathering was not an evangelistic event, and yet the church exploded. Why? Because the believers lived lives that were so radically different from the world that it got people's attention. And they said, you know what? That gospel must be true. That gospel that you preach and you talk about, it must be true. And through the years, I've had some people ask me, Pastor, why don't you give an altar call every single Sunday? 
Like, you never know. There might be an unbeliever in the room, and, and they might not get another chance to hear the gospel and, and respond, okay? Like, like you've you got to give the altar call every Sunday. Well, let me turn that back on you. Every time you're in someone's house, do you share the gospel, right? Because you never know. Why not? They, they might walk out the door and, and get hit by a bus. You know, early on in my ministry, I had someone say to me, you know, Pastor, you don't know. They might walk out the door and get hit by a bus. And I'm like, man, does that mean the, their blood's on my hand? Like, that's a lot, right? And I had to take it to the Lord. I said, this is, this is too much for me to carry. Like, what if I forget to give the altar call, right? What, what if I say something wrong and I don't convince them? But I've come to learn that salvation is a work of God. And he may use something I say to help someone cross over the line of faith. He may not. Some plant, some water, some harvest, but it's God who brings the increase, right? But here's the reality. If you're here today and you're in the room and you don't know Jesus, you're probably here because somebody invited you here. There's probably something in that individual's life that made you, made you say, you know what, there must be something to this. Uh, today after church, go to lunch with them. Mm-hmm. Let them share their story with you. You know their lives better than you know mine. They can share with you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want you to think about where we are as a church today. And when I say church, I mean the church at large. When evangelism has simply been narrowed down to this, inviting a friend to church and just hoping and praying that in those 30 minutes, the pastor says something that's going to be so profound that the individual surrenders their lives to Christ. Can that happen? Absolutely. But I think they trust you more than me. And if you don't know how to share the gospel, that's what I'm here for, right? We are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But I've come to see Sunday mornings as less of an evangelistic event and more of an equipping event. According to Scripture, again, I'm called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And, And I think a big part of the reason the church in America is so weak right now is that pastors have kept things at a surface level. They've tried not to offend because, you know, there might be a visitor in the house and we can't have them walk out upset, right? And, and so they keep feeding the congregation milk rather than the meat of God's word. And here's the reality. We've seen it. We, we saw it especially before COVID. Churches have grown numerically and individuals have stayed small spiritually. And if there's one thing this past season has made very clear to me as a pastor, it's this, that in America, we don't need bigger churches, we need bigger Christians. We don't need bigger churches, we need bigger Christians. We need believers who are grounded enough in the Word of God, who understand that they've been adopted into the family of God, who by the power of the Holy Spirit are living in such a way that they can say to the world around them, you know, you want to know if the gospel is true? Look at my life. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. But sadly, that's not the church I see today. I see a church where the slogan is so often, well, I'm not perfect. I'm I'm just forgiven. Again, I hear me. I understand what you're saying there. But don't let that be a cop-out in your life to live holy. Don't let that be a cop-out in your life to live holy. In other words, we say so often, don't look at my life. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Don't imitate me. (laughs) Just look at Jesus. Again, it's absolutely true that we need to direct people to Jesus. But it's also true that we should be living lives where people could say, wow, I can see the gospel is true by the way you live your life. 
see the, the way, the, I can see the gospel's true by the way you love your spouse, by the way you raise your children. I can see the gospel is true by the way you respond when circumstances come your way. I can see that the gospel is true. Now, I hope you see what Paul has done in this text, in chapter 2. Paul was saying to the religious man, he's saying, man, it's not the law that saves you. It's not the ceremonies that save you. Hear me today. You can't trust in the fact that you've been brought up in a Christian home or you've been baptized or any other ritual like that to save you in and of itself. When we talk about rituals like baptism, yes, they're important. But but you can think about baptism. I, I like to think of it this way. It's like a label on a can. You got a can of corn, it helps to have a label on the outside of the can, right? And if the label on the outside of the can matches what's on the inside of the can, then it's helpful. But if the label doesn't match what's inside, the label's useless, right? Somebody's going to think they're getting corn for dinner and they get peaches. It's, it's horrible, right? Hear me today. As we close, as we get ready to move to the communion table, having the law is not enough. God requires righteousness. Having rituals is not enough. God requires righteousness. And that only comes through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. To the religious person, to the one that's trusting in their works to somehow save them, Paul's going to say, well, you may be a little bit further along when compared to other people, but not when you look at God's righteous standard. And for the religious person, can I just say that's a tough pill to swallow. As tough as that is, I have to warn you, it's going to get a little worse next week, okay? If you're not there already, Paul's going to take all of us to that place where we have absolutely no confidence in and of ourselves whatsoever to save ourselves. But in the midst of that, I want you to see verse 16 again as we close. Paul says, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Can I just say, I love that phrase, my gospel. It's not the gospel. When Paul says my gospel, he's not saying I made this up. He doesn't have a patent on this thing, okay? What he's saying is that that gospel is is so deep inside of him that he owns it for himself. It's very similar to the way that a soldier would look at a flag and say, that's my flag or, or that's my country. But here's the final question as we close. I promise this is it. And this is a good question to dwell on as we come to the communion table. Can you say with Paul, my gospel? That's my gospel. Can you say that or is it just the gospel that Pastor Daniel preaches about on Sunday morning? Or or the gospel that your wife believes or your, your grandmother told you about? Or can you say for yourself today, that's my gospel? Oh, I know the good news of Jesus Christ. That even though I'm a guilty sinner, oh, you may be an immoral man, a morally superior man, or a religious man today. It doesn't matter. All of us need to trust in Jesus for salvation. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only way that we can be saved is by looking outside of ourselves, and that's the good news of the gospel that comes to us. It's an understanding that Jesus died on the cross to bear all of the sin and all the punishment and all the shame that our sin deserves. He bore the cross in our place to take our sin and give us his righteousness. That's a great exchange of the gospel. But it needs to belong to you. And you need to own it. And if you haven't owned it, I think you could decide this morning. That's what I pray. I wanna, I wanna pray for you as we prepare to come to the communion table. Would you stand with me? 
with heads bowed around the room. Father, I pray for anyone this morning, anyone under the sound of my voice who needs to make that decision. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to their heart, that you would stir their heart right now, that you would lead them to repentance. Lord, maybe they've been waiting for you to drive them to repentance, but I thank you this morning that by your love you're leading them to repentance. And because of that, we respond with surrender. Lord, I pray that each and every person in this room that they would own the gospel, that it would be their gospel. Lord, forgive us this morning for trusting in religious ceremonies or just the fact that we own a Bible. (laughs) Lord, keep us from trusting those things and bring us to a place where we trust in Christ alone to save us. It's in that name that we pray. Amen and amen. Let's worship. Let's prepare our hearts as we get ready to come to the communion table today. I want to encourage you as we worship to do business with God. If it's not your gospel, say, Lord, I want to take a hold of that good news this morning. Amen. Let's worship him. You're the name above all names 
today do you understand he is he's worthy he's worthy to be exalted scripture says this that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but he took on the form of a servant and Jesus became obedient became obedient to death even death on a cross he allowed his body to be broken so that you and I could be made whole when we talk about justification by, by faith, it's this understanding that Jesus has accomplished it for us. It's simply by faith in him that we receive right standing with God. It's because of what he did on the cross. And so Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We do this because we need to be reminded that we could never be good enough in our own, could never obey the law perfectly enough, that we would always fall short. But it's by faith in what Jesus did for us that we've been made right before God. So would you thank him? Just take a moment and thank him for the bread. Thank him for his body that was broken for you. Thank him for that restored relationship with God this morning. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you. Thank you as we hold the bread today. Lord, we're reminded, Lord Jesus, of what you did for us. Lord, that you went to the cross, that you took our place, that you... You bore the punishment that we deserve, Lord. And so we're reminded today of what you've done for us, and we can't help but be humbled. We can't help but be grateful, Lord God, that you call us to to do this in remembrance. We thank you, Lord God, today for what you've done for us. Scripture says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, on that very night he took the bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's receive with thankful hearts. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. As you prepare the cup this morning, it is a a symbol. It's a symbol of Christ's blood that was shed for us. Scripture says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins. But Jesus came and he allowed his blood to be shed 
the cup we talked about it a few weeks ago it wasn't just the cross that he was facing when Jesus says if there is a way let this cup pass from me it was the wrath of God when Jesus went to the cross he wasn't just the nails that pierced his hands it wasn't just the crown of thorns on his head he took the cup of God's wrath so that you and I don't have to there's no way we could bear that but Jesus came and he bore it for us when we talk about the blood today understand there's forgiveness in the blood there's cleansing in the blood it's why by faith in what Jesus did for us there's no longer any condemnation there's no longer any guilt or any shame I want to say this morning if you've walked in here and you're struggling with sin in your life scripture says if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to not only forgive us of our sins but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness there's forgiveness in the house today. There's cleansing in the house today because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so just thank him this morning. Thank him this morning for forgiveness that overflows into your life. Come on, begin to just thank him. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord God. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the cup today. Lord God, we thank you that, Lord, you bore that cup. You bore the cup of God's wrath. You bore what we deserve. Lord, as you hung on that cross and as your blood was shed, Lord God, as your blood was spilled, Lord God, forgiveness overflows into our lives now. Lord, we don't need to carry around any shame or guilt or condemnation for sins of the past. Lord God, we thank you today that they're forgiven because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, even now we confess those sins before you. You know them already, but we confess them before you. And we ask that you would cleanse us, Lord God, that you'd change us, that you'd make us more like you. Lord, as we hold the cup today, we thank you for your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray, even in this moment, as we're your church gathered together today that you would do something supernatural within us Lord that as your people we would be bold enough to say you, you want to know the gospel's true look at my life imitate me as I imitate Christ Lord we pray by the work of your Holy Spirit you continue to change us that you continue to shape us we thank you Lord God, God that it's through the blood that we've been adopted into your family that we're now your sons and daughters and so continue the work that you've begun. Scripture says in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's receive with grateful hearts. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's worship him before we leave this place. Amen. Why don't you just lift your hands before him. Just give him thanks for what he's done in your life. Amen. Let's worship him before we go today.